folding pocket. Welcome to another episode of The Rabbit Hole Detectives, a podcast where I, Dr. Kat Jarman, Richard Coles and Charles Spencer chase the provenance of historical objects, both real and metaphorical. Each episode, we set one another the task of finding out as much as we can about a particular subject to present a comprehensive understanding of the origin stories of stuff. After all, everything has a history. It just depends on how far down the rabbit hole you prepare to go. And at the end of it all, our disembodied voice pronounces a winner. So hello again, Rabbit Holies. Hello. How are we all today? Very happy. I'm traumatised. Being are in a you? bus accident. Yes, you have to tell us all about that. That well, did sound you dramatic. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a thing that happens that you see in the paper every 20 years. But I was on a bus and he went the wrong way. We got stuck under a bridge. Very traumatised. I was in a train crash once. What happened? Um, that was in Glasgow. Gosh, a very long time ago just in a station waiting for the engine to come to the back of the train to pull it out another way, middle of the night, in a sleeper. And um, the train motor lost control and smashed into us. And it's very interesting because you're, the compartments, the carriages buckle up and both ends get very squashed and the other bit rises up. And in fact, the first I knew about it was when a fireman came through my door with an axe. I'd slept through it. But people were very badly That's hurt. That's my idea of a train journey. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> really? Gosh, yes. how dramatic. It was on the news and all. Were you in one of the compressed bits or the bit in the A, a that bit went that up? went up. Well, that was probably the best place to yeah. be, right? But there was a lot of glass. That was the problem for the injuries I saw. Um, yeah. A lot of blood. How Goodness. about you? Have you been involved in any transport like, related None accidents? None at all. Not even a sledge or a longboat accident? Sledge. Oh. <laughs> no, my longboat's been safe. Yes. <laughs> what about a balsa Volvos. raft? Have you ever <laughs> No, even my balsa rafts have been fine. So, yeah. <laughs> Although I wasn't one on wheels, so I'm going to be talking about later on. So we'll save that okay. one. So there is an accident involved in today's topic. So mm. there we go. Well, we are so pleased you're here and yes. whole in one piece. We could Thank have lost you. you. I'm very brave, Richard. I thought yeah. quietly yeah. stoical and yeah. heroic is yeah. the look I'm going Just carry for. on. Yeah. yeah. Well, so as we're all here and we're all you yes. know, safe and yes. sound, should we just go straight into it? Let's do it. And so not accidents, but accidental discoveries is going to well, be your topic today, Richard. Yes, of course, it's a thing, isn't it? There's some famous examples of things that we know were to, uh, the result of accidents rather than a sort of purposeful discovery. Post-it notes is a famous one, isn't it? Some guy was working on some kind of adhesive and he couldn't get it to work. He got stuff's useless. And then somebody realised, well, actually, it was enough, strong enough to stick a bit of paper to a thing, but would come off when you peeled it off and leave no trace behind. The post-it note was born. Lots of things started that way. Are you familiar with the work of Georges de Mestral? No. Swiss gentleman, out for a walk with his dog in the 1940s, this was. Now, if you, like me, have a dachshund, which is a low-slung beast. And if that dachshund is of the long-haired variety, you'll find, when you come in from a country walk, that often lots of little birds have attached themselves to the fur on the belly of a dachshund. It's a bore unpicking them. Exactly. So Monsieur de Mestral came in with a dog and found that it was the burdock had attached itself to the dog's soft fur. So he kind of combed it out and combed it out. Hang on a minute. Hold on a second. 
there's something in this. <laughs> and he began to realize that it might be the answer to a problem that would clearly have huge potential for commercial exploitation. And that was a form of fastening, kind of based on hook and eye in principle, but one that would not require to be laboriously fastened or unfastened. Something that you could, on the same sort of principle, that you could have one surface which was hooked and another surface which was the equivalent of a sort of soft fur, and the hooks would attach themselves, and yet you would be able to just put them together and they'd hold and then just peel them apart with that lovely Velcro sound. We all know. Did you know? There is silent Velcro now. <laughs> well, there is, because they found the military, because obviously oh, lots of yes. military applications for Velcro, they found that it actually gave your position away if you were tearing Velcro off. So they made silent Velcro, but that was way, way down the line. He worked on this for years and years and years. It was very fiddly to get right. Often these accidental discoveries do require a lot of R&D, if you mean, to make them work. But eventually he found that nylon was the material that gave him what he wanted which was reliability and durability, and also economy of cost in manufacturing. And then he invented a machine which could cut off the little hooks to make them of a standard size. That was fiddly and got that. Then it went into production. You'd think, wouldn't you, what could be better than Velcro? If you are, for instance, a child and you're trying to fasten a child's shoes, you've both been there, I've not been there. But if you were also looking after an invalid or someone who couldn't bed, an older person, Velcro fastened shoes, well, I've definitely been there. I'm only a step away from them myself. You can see the usefulness of the application there. But it took a while to get going because people didn't really get into it. And eventually they did. Velcro. Do you know how it got its name? Velour. Velour. And oh. crochet. Crochet. Yeah. So it was kind of hooking to a piled surface. So that was um, him, Monsieur de Mistral, mm. and Velcro. Now, one of my favourite ones was Mr. Perkin. Mr. Perkin was a young British chemist, aged 18. And he was trying to synthesise coal tar to create something that would be effective as an anti-malarial. Quinine, of course, we know famously, we've talked about this in our cocktail thing, was going to be used very effectively against malaria. So he took some coal tar, it was actually at the behest of his chemistry professor, and he messed around with it, couldn't get it to work, but he did notice he had invented a form of dye, the aniline dye. The colour that it produced was a sort of lovely purple colour. So a bit of work on that. And he realised that he'd found something that you could dye clothes with, this lovely shade, and it would be fixed and reasonably permanent, perhaps not by the standards of the day, but by the standards of the time. What was that colour? What was that substance? Well, the substance was known as mauvine, and the colour was mauve. Mauve, French for mallow. So it's the colour of the mallow flower. So he produced this and it went into production and everybody went absolutely mad for it. And so in the 19th century, it began to appear everywhere. It was known as the Movine measles. <laughs> so many people, it was so contagious and so spread around and around and around. So everybody dressed up with dyed textile in Movine. If you go to the V&A or somewhere like that, you'll see so many dresses from that period in uh, Europe that are that colour of mauve. Do you know it's trendy again now? Mauve is Vogue's top interior design colour for 2023. Do you know why? Because it's got earthy tones to it, the brownishness in it, which we like because it grounds us. But it's also got the purple in it, which pops. So you can be grounded and also pop. I know this because it's in vogue. Anyway, so that's your movie. Well, it's not my favourite one, but there's one that I'm particularly interested in because it's particularly timely, and I'm sort of going out on a limb here. This is 
a thought that occurred to me. I've just come back from Egypt, where I have been taking a leisurely journey down the oh, Nile. It seemed horrible. I'm so sorry yes. for you. It was you really, really tough. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, we were last week, you were talking about the Ptolemaic pharaohs, yes. Charles. were fascinating to see at the end of Egyptian civilization, of ancient Egyptian civilization, Greco-Roman stuff coming into the picture. And because you think of the pyramids as these kind of unchanging fixed points in a civilization that endured for 5,000 years, full of change. Of course it was. Everything changes all the time. And one of the most interesting pharaohs started off as Amenhotep the fourth, but we know him as Akhenaten. And Akhenaten, who reigned around in the 1300s BC, was a fascinating guy. So he was born to rule in Thebes, which was the capital of ancient Egypt. And it was served by the priests of Amun, who'd become immensely powerful. If you were a priest in the cult of Amun, basically the pharaoh kind of worked for you rather than you for the pharaoh. And Akhenaten had had enough of this. So he moved out of Thebes and built a new capital in the desert at Akhetaten. And there he decided that he was going to motivate all the religious resources at his disposal into the worship of the sun, Aten, the cult of Aten. So he built this new city and a palace, an imperial center and a temple center out in the desert near modern-day Armana. And there he invented this cult of the sun, the sun supreme among the gods. Some would say only God. Some would say soul God. So what are we moving towards here? Well, some have said that what Akhenaten invented, really just as a way of depriving the priests of Ammon of their privileges, was monotheism. I don't think that's right, actually. It was monolatrism, perhaps, but not quite monotheism. But it was, I think you could claim it as almost as the accidental discovery of monotheism. I don't think there is a single idea, at least until Darwin, which has had more impact on world affairs and civilization and history than monotheism, actually. But that's by the by. What other accidental discoveries? Are? Well, famously, Alexander Fleming. Probably the most yes. famous yes. of all, don't you think? Yes. yes. There he is, working at St. Mary's Hospital in Prade Street in Paddington in 1928. Yeah. Goes away, comes back, left a Petri dish out with some horrible thing in it. And penicillin was born. Took a while to get that right, of course. It was difficult to get it into a form where it could be used in medicine. And, of course, that was the birth of antibiotics. And that was to save a great many people from untimely deaths. Before that, people died of the most mundane things, didn't they? Because of a minor infection. It's yeah. extraordinary. I think I might have mentioned it in a previous one, but President Coolidge's son got a blister playing tennis at the White House and died because it was just before penicillin came out in the, in the 20s. I'm glad you raised the topic of the American presidency because there was an American, <laughs> another American president, actually a president himself, who benefited very much from an accidental discovery. And that was due... Well, there was a Canadian vet in the 1920s who observed that a whole load of cattle were dying of this awful internal bleeding, and he couldn't figure out what it was. Eventually tracked it down. Sweet clover in the hay had gone mouldy and the beasts that ate this mouldy sweet clover developed this terrible internal bleeding and died. Nothing much happened about that, wrote about it, knew about it, until somebody thought, well, hang on, what's going on? And they isolated the material that it was in the mouldy hay that caused this to happen. And originally they thought, well, I'm going to make a rat poison out of this because, as you know, 
rat poison works in that way by causing internal bleeding. Mm. This was a chap who was working in Wisconsin, I should say, and uh, was very much interested with the uh, Wisconsin Alumnus Research Fund, W-A-R-F, WARF. And eventually he synthesized a drug, not a blood thinner actually, but an anticoagulant, but that went on to have an enormous benefit for people who were suffering from stroke or heart attack, because WARF, warfarin. The invention of warfarin, thanks to cows eating mouldy sweet clover in Canada in the 1920s. Who's the American president that most benefited? It was Dwight D. Eisenhower, had a heart attack in 1955, and was one of the very, very first patients to be treated with warfarin. So, there you go. There is a selection of accidents. Oh, the matches! The match, 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 match. John Walker invented the friction match. You imagine trying to start a fire mm. before, mm. you know, if you had a flint or that kind or of thing, yes. it was a real pain. And so the first matches that were invented were called Prometheans, and they were actually little files of sulfuric acid. Darwin liked them. But uh, Mr. Walker, I think it was in the 1820s, 1827, I think, I can't quite remember. Someone will know. I'll ask you to voice to look that up. But he was just messing around with various ways of getting some sort of ignitable material on the end of a stick, and he dropped one on a hearth, and it burst into flame, and thus the invention of the friction match, which, of course, changed so many lives. Eventually, they realised that white phosphorus was the stuff you wanted to be at the business end of a match. So huge industry sprang up, but white phosphorus, incredibly dangerous material. So you think of the striking match girls, as they were known in mm. London at the end of the 19th century, fossy jaw, this terrible condition that people who work with white phosphorus got. It actually rotted away the elements of their jaw. So fossy jaw was a terrible thing. Anyway, refinement, 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 you ended up with the friction match. So many more examples that I just simply can't think of. Now. But do you have a favourite? Well, I do have a favourite fact. It's about Movine. So Movine became incredibly popular because it was this perky, popping colour that all of a sudden you could dress in and look splendid. It became rather a thing. And the 1890s became known as the Mauve Decade. Oscar Wilde wrote about Mauve as a kind of indicator of something about somebody that suggested perhaps an element in their life that might not be mainstream, if you see what I mean. And it became slang for gay. And one of the most famous instances of that, actually, is in With Nail and I. Because do you remember the lecherous Uncle Monty? Of course, he's the star of the show. Who takes a tremendous interest in With Nail. Yes. He says to With Nail, you're so mauve. I'd forgotten that. One of the great so comedies of all time. That's yeah. my favourite fact. That's brilliant. Brilliant. We've got something from the disembodied voice, I think. So John Walker first discovered the friction match in 1826 and then the first matches were sold in 1827 so that's why you've got 1827 in your head okay yeah just think about how much effort it must have gone into trying to start a fire could you start a fire using a flint they were very common little gifts sort of 100 years ago or so it's like a little silver thing and you struck it together to make a flame we found one in the grounds at home, actually, which somebody had dropped, and it was a present from some children to a father at Christmas. But people had that, but that's very inconvenient. It must have been a lot of effort to strike it right to get the spark and to light your cigarette or whatever it was. We used to like, um, when I was at school, magnifying glasses, and you could, in a sunny day, you could concentrate with a magnifying glass. That, very exciting. And then it was really On fun moss. when people were watching cricket 
you'd do it on their socks and you'd burn a hole in their ankles. <laughs> that was my favourite sport. Thank you, Richard. Oh, actually, I forgot to say, I mean, archaeologists are always being told that we are accidentally discovering things. According to the news, we're always stumbling on things mm. and always accidentally discovering things. It's quite condescending, isn't it? It is a bit. Yes. It's but I mean, you can sort of shorten the odds of your accidental discovery by being good at your job, right? Yeah, and sort <laughs> yes. of having a, a good idea of what we're actually doing. But anyway, that's a different story. So. Ah, mm, The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com. I think it's on to me next now. And I've been looking at something that I used to do a long time ago, which is the sport of roller derby. <laughs> and I don't know if you've ever seen a roller derby I can only game. now see you doing roller derby yes. in my mind. Yes. I've never seen a roller derby, so I'm a bit stuck on this one. So for those who are not familiar with this sport, you sort of have to imagine a game of rugby without a ball on a track on roller skates. Basically. A contact sport. Yes, yeah, so it's a full contact sport played on roller skates. But no ball. No ball, no. So the aim of it, so you've got two teams fighting against or playing against each other. There's five on each team. One is called a jammer and the other four are blockers. And the aim is to go around in a sort of two-minute bout or two-minute jam, as it's called. So the jammers are meant to go around as many times as possible, scoring a point every time you go past the other team's blockers. So you blockers, are the ball. So, yeah, human, human ball, you're sort of going around it. And the blockers, obviously, are trying to stop you. That's where the full contact bit comes in. And it's a lot of fun. Uh, it's quite... Is it a Scandinavian thing? No, no, no. It started, so I'm going to tell you about oh, the sorry, history yes. of it. It's, it's, uh, it started in, in America, obviously. It sort of revived in the last 20 years or so. It's not hugely popular, especially as a woman's sport, actually. Men play it too, but it's particularly become famous and popular as a, as a women's sport. It is really fun. So you asked me about accidents and transport-related accidents. So on wheels, I did break my leg, which is why I had to stop playing. Your leg? Because I broke my leg no, as I care. was jamming. Someone blocked you Someone or jammed did you? block me as I was jamming. <laughs> yes. Did you know you broke so, your leg? So, yes, I did because I could hear it. That's <laughs> <laughs> how I fell. It didn't hurt, but I could hear it. It was like a twig snapping. And then, and then I couldn't stand on it, so, it, so that wasn't great. That I wasn't always know great, when I break, I've only broken minor bones, but I always know when I feel nauseous afterwards, that's, that's when I know I've broken it. Yeah. It was just very, very boring because I couldn't do anything for about 10 weeks. But why so didn't it hurt? Is this because you're from Viking stock? I don't or, know. I, mean, I don't know. <laughs> broken bone is a, but... it's a horrible feeling, isn't it? Yeah. It's well, it's, it hurt later when it was recovering, but... Anyway, because I didn't actually know much about the history of Roly Derby, because it does seem like a, a totally mad sport. Mm. It is fun. But it goes back to America, to the US, in the 1930s, actually. And it was invented, essentially, in 1935 in a slightly different form. So invented by a man who was essentially an event promoter called Leo Seltzer. And this was Depression era, and he was trying to look for something to excite big crowds basically and there's all sorts of weird and wacky sports and things like 
dance-a-thons, dance marathons and all these sort of quite extreme things. So he was looking at all of this. He also read somewhere that over 90% of the American population had tried roller skating and roller skating had become hugely popular. So he thought, well, let's do something about this. So he created something that he called Transcontinental Derby, which is the forerunner to roller derby. And this was a huge event. And the first of these was played on the 13th of August, 1935 in Chicago and drew a crowd of 20,000 people. And it was built of several different teams, a team of, of a man and a woman who had to skate around a track on roller skates 57,000 times, a distance of uh, 3,000 miles. Shut up! <laughs> because they, like they, they were sort of... crossing. Yes, exactly. So it was times. Yeah, well, that was the aim to win it, basically. So this was hugely popular. And for two years, they sort of toured around. And then they realized it was actually quite repetitive because <laughs> it took a long time. But the crowds liked, they liked the roller skating. So he teamed up with a sports writer called Damon Runyon. And they thought, we need a bit more drama in this. So they thought, let's have them competing against each other. Let's have a bit of drama. Let's score some points. And that was essentially the start of Roller Derby. And by the sort of late 30s and 1940s, it became a huge national sensation in the US. For a week, I think in the mid-1940s, Madison Square Gardens was completely sold out with all these Roller Derby matches. It was broadcast on ABC, bouts were broadcast three times a week. Lots of films were produced, including one called The Fireball with Marilyn Monroe. That was all about Roller Derby. And it started to become very competitive. So this sort of idea of competing, of the teams... People were falling over, the crowds liked this, it's becoming a bit more violent or not properly violent, but sort of show violent, really. Like wrestling. A bit like wrestling mm. on roller skates. <laughs> and it was hugely, hugely popular. And certainly into the 1940s, this became a massive big sport. And it was interesting because it was one of very few sports that was from the start created for both men and women. So typically it would have two teams alternating, so a men's team and then a women's team. So not against each other, but separately, yes. but at the same time. Yes. And that was really rare in the sort of 30s and 40s to have women's sport essentially completely side by side with men's. Why? It just seemed to have started that way. So that initial race, that sort of transcontinental race, that was a man and a woman side by side doing the thing together. I wonder if they had in the back of their minds the marathon dances where you'd have a male partner and a exactly. female partner. Quite so women could get involved. And yeah. And this was also because it was a full contact sport that actually women were playing. That was also quite rare. You had other contact sports women could play as well. But the fact that they were essentially a full part of it from the start made it really, really unique and very popular. There's a lot of showmanship around it and a lot of drama. There was lots of rivalry with all these different teams. And so crowds absolutely loved it. But then interest sort of waned a bit. One sort of solution to that was to bring in more drama. So it became a bit ridiculous after a while. So the sort of showmanship involved a bit like a wrestling type things, I think. And into the 60s, it returned. It returned to Madison Square Gardens. And again, huge crowds. And some of these athletes really, because it was it was a sport. It wasn't just a pretend thing. You have to, it's very physical. It's very difficult to play. You have to be quite sort of skilled to be good at it. Some of them aren't an awful lot of money as well. So again, it was something where even though women weren't making quite as much as men, they were still bringing in a huge amount, which was quite rare. And were they wearing protective padding? 
Yeah, so helmets, not quite so much in the earlier stages. If you play it now, you have to wear full Mm. protective gear. There's lots of rules about how you're allowed to hit and block people and Mm. and all of that. But the helmet's definitely there. But there was a lot of injuries as well, which obviously... But was your leg broken under a foul manoeuvre? It actually was, yes. Yes. Somebody did something they shouldn't have done. Do you want to name the girl who (laughs) did that? I'm not going to. I'm not going to. I'm going to leave it on. So it's interesting because you're only allowed to block going in one direction, going forwards. Yeah. So... Because so that everything's means in that, front of you, right? Yeah, so if you fall, so you learn how to fall on your knees in, in the sort of best way. And somebody did actually block me going towards me when I was jamming hmm. and moving forwards. I shouldn't have done it, so it wasn't my fault. Do you I'm remember saying. her name? <laughs> Maybe, but <laughs> I'm not do. going to name and shame. She knows. She, she might knows. be listening. Yes, exactly. But um, it was something that seemed to really, uh, at certain points in time, really just, capture everyone's imagination but then it died out again in the 1970s until 2001 when it was revived again starting in America but then really growing much more as a sport so some of that silly kind of fighting gone from the sport really and it's become a really popular women's sport a feminist sport there's a huge sort of community aspect to it it's very popular in queer communities as well it's very accepting and it is lovely it's one of those where when I played actively I would travel around for work and you could just join the local team and you could just go and practice and play with them and they'd welcome you how did you get into it Kat? I used to love ice skating growing up in Norway. That's always great fun. So you got around, yeah? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And I just saw there was a local, so I played for the Bath Royal Derby Girls and they had a, a new, you know, intake. Well, where did you go do it? Why? Where? Where? I was just in a sports hall. You just do it in a local sports hall. Everyone rocks up with their roller skates and helmets. And it doesn't have to be like a around. velodrome. It doesn't have to be a special No, place. so you do. You can get the bank tracks, oh. but the one that's most popular now is the flat track. So that's the more common thing. But it's really good. It's really hard work. Yeah, I miss it, but I don't want any more broken legs. You're too young to remember the film Rollerball. Oh, yes. I am, yes. Tell me about it. Well, it was a great movie in the 1970s. James Caan, I think. It was James Caan. And it was set in a dystopian future around this game called Rollerball, which was like a version, exactly what you're talking about. Yes. But with a little more more violence. Yeah, (laughs) and if you won Rollerball, you would kind of live long and prosper. So I can't remember what the thing was. It's a very good film. It was good. Very brutal. But it was incredibly violent, and people kept getting killed. They had little... Indicator next to them should go off if they. Was well, like Squid Games for its time, I think. I suppose it was, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. Oh, see. That was a good show too. Yeah. yeah. Favourite fact, Kat? Okay, so my favourite fact is the fact that when you play roller derby, you have a roller derby name. <laughs> Are we allowed to guess? So you have to, yes. So you, so you have to have a name, and it's usually something you know. Either it can be a pun, so it's usually a pun on your name, yes. somehow or something. What you do, interest, anything, and Wild then the cat. character. It wasn't quite that. No, no. Any other guesses? Viking princess. <laughs> um, it was actually relating to one of my previous rabbit hole topics, a recent one, a character. Oh, my goodness. Well, there's too many. We've done so many. Yes. <laughs> so, shall I just tell you? Yes. So, my name was Katahari. Oh, Very good. That's brilliant. Katahari. Katahari. No, I'd like, like to see her on Rolls. Well, <laughs> yes. I'll have to show you, show you the photos. I would have loved to. <laughs> yes. Now, I happen to know also that the disembodied voice managed to find a Roller Derby name generator online, and she looked up you two as well to see what you would be yes i did so introducing to the roller derby rink we have richard coles's rampant chaos (laughs) (laughs) 
and Charles Spencer as Serial Slammiton. <laughs> I don't know what to say. And I also did myself. Yes. The disembodied voice is Dr. Vicious. Dr. Well, Dr. Vicious. I think we can all agree on that. Yeah, that sounds very, very good. Very suitable and appropriate. I, I'd like to have a go at it in a leisurely way. Maybe with two supporters like Ptolemy. Ptolemy. Yes. Human walking sticks. We can do that. And we won't do that. We won't do the sort of pushing you over. But there we go. So that's my word of done. Very good. Thank I really care. like that. It was very good that. fun. <laughs> Thank you. So this leads, I think, quite nicely very onto your I was thinking, topic, goodness, actually. I mean, absolutely. Because yeah. when you were talking about entertaining the crowds and the combat and all that, I mean, that leads straight into gladiators. Yes. And we don't really know for sure where the whole concept of gladiatorial combat came from, probably from the Etruscans and the Romans picked it up. The first reference we have to it, for sure, in Roman context, was in the Cattle Market Forum of Rome. Livy wrote about it in 264. And it was a man called Decimus Junius Brutus Pyrrha wanting to honour his father's memory with a fight to the death of three men. And it's extraordinary, really, because I wanted to know when I got this topic, who on earth would want to be a gladiator? And actually, weirdly, some people did. Okay, a lot were slaves. Mm. Others were sort of slightly press ganged into it. But there were a lot of volunteers. And they came from the most sort of socioeconomic depressed people in Rome because there was a payment made when you basically gave your life up to your sponsor. You got a payment. Was it like... Premiership football now was there sort of if you were really good did you get paid more? You didn't get paid again. You were sort of oh uh, you were bought forever. You were bought forever, and you entered a state called infamia or infamia, which basically meant that you had no legal rights ever again. You had no citizen rights. You were essentially an outlaw. And I think this is the most interesting aspect of this whole topic. Isn't the fighting? It's the social background yeah. to it. Yeah. So essentially, you enter a dark world where you are the lowest of the low. Because in Roman society, if people were coming to watch you and you were there to entertain them, you were lower than the lowest person benefiting from the spectacle. So I'm afraid it went for actors as well. They were considered infamia. And so were prostitutes. So you entered that world of just being a social outcast for entertainment. So you had no agency when you were merely there to entertain. Yeah. Yeah. And you were very valuable alive. So I think we have a much darker view of the outcome. You always see the thumb going up or down of the host of the day. But it would be very rare to end in death because the supplier of gladiators would charge you, it's been worked out a hundred times, the fee for a dead one <laughs> as a live one, because they were incredibly expensive to yeah. breed. They were trained in schools. The school would often be in the amphitheater where they were going to fight technically to the death, you know, or theoretically to the death. You were really built up. You were given a, a very high quality diet and you were given wooden weapons to correspond with the ones that you were going to use. You were a specialist in a different field of fighting. You stuck with one particular way. There are about 28 ways, which I'll touch on, that you could be armed. But you would use wooden instruments that were heavier than the ones you were going to use to build up muscle and stamina. And often, if you were practicing, you practice by yourself against a thing called a palus, which was a wooden post, which was roughly six... Roman feet high 
And yeah, you were not meant to be killed. That would be a very expensive entertainment. But people would give the sentence of death to show how incredibly rich they were. And it was a show-off thing to allow that. So that you wouldn't need civic authority. You wouldn't need to be an emperor to do that. It would simply be that you'd paid. Yeah, you could be a local patron, a local very powerful person wanting to show off. There was a calendar of events for the gladiatorial combat. You knew when one was coming. It was a big festival. And people would turn up in huge crowds. Again, the social aspect's interesting. The highest to the lowest would all sit in the same amphitheater, but they were in very specific sections corresponding to your social status. And actually, when you look at the Roman philosophers and the Christian, early Christian critics of this, it wasn't about the death that they were particularly concerned. It was about the way the crowd behaved. They went berserk, I suggest, even more than a roller derby crowd, (laughs) uh, at the whole prospect. Mm. And there was a rolling program which you knew in advance. It would be like going to a show now where you have a warm-up comedian or whatever. You know what's coming. Often they would have exotic animals shown. I couldn't come across any gladiators killing wild beasts. It was not... The gladiators were too powerful and important for that. Oh, they did the wild beasts to eat the Christians as well. Well, they used to do that. Christians, you're right. And prisoners Mm. would be thrown to them. And then the crescendo would go up, the band would play louder, and the climax was the man against man thing. And there were different things I've mentioned. Just some of the categories. There were equites, which is the Latin for knights, but they would arrive on horseback. And we're not sure if they actually fought on horseback or got down on foot. The mermelo, that was a Latinized version from a Greek word for a fish. And that corresponded with the shape of the helmets. A lot of the weapons these people had were not particularly helpful. The helmet was very stifling, very limited eyesight, difficult to breathe, but obviously quite useful if you're going to be hit over the head. Also, the mermelo would have a a heavy, solid shield. Everything was scaled to the particular type of fighter you were. The Thraxes, or the Thrakes, was based on the Thracians, who were fighters from what we would call Turkey, Bulgaria, and Greece. These were considered particularly barbarian enemy of the Roman state. They were given the sort of small square shield and the curved sword that the Romans associated with those particular enemy. And then you had, and I, I'm sure there are people who know these pronunciations better than me, but the Hoplomachus, he carried a lance and a short sword and an even smaller round shield. Everything was meant to balance out. Bigger shield in a more lumbering form, smaller shield if you've got swifter weapons, if I can put it in that way. And then the Esidarius, which was the mounted gladiators in chariots, they would fight each other to the death. But there were at least two dozen of these different types. And you always fought correspondingly. Each of those classes fought against another class. You didn't muddle it up because the man with the net and the trident was considered the right man to fight against the mermelo. So it's all very, very sort of siloed. You knew who you were fighting. That's the one I wanted to be was the net and trident guy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Give it a throw and hope. I just thought this, like, you got a net, you got a trident. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, sounds yeah. good. But I mean, see, they weren't, they were like wargaming in a way. These weren't, this wasn't equipment that was optimised for purpose. It was decorative, it was theatrical, it was display. And they reckon that nearly every one of them came from a concept of how the enemies of Rome fought. Ah. So you were, in a way, glorifying your enemy 
but under a controlled environment where, at the end of the day, the Roman bravery would win. And, you know, a lot of these people were were obviously from captured sort of soldiers, etc. Obviously, the most famous one of all would be Spartacus. And he was probably from Thrace, the area that I mentioned, the sort of Balkan area. And he probably, given how good he was at commanding a very disparate force, they think he probably was from the Roman army. We do know for sure he was schooled in Capua, north of Naples. And he escaped and went into the Mount Vesuvius foothills. And he was eventually joined and joined up with 100,000 men. And in the Third Servile War, they caused mayhem. And uh, it was only when one of the great powerful men of Roman history, Crassus, encircled his army that, well, Spartacus broke through the encirclement, but then was beaten at a battle called Lusania. And then he probably died in that battle, unlike the famous movie where he's crucified. He probably died in battle, but 6,000 of his men were scooped up and they were crucified along the Roman roads to be a deterrent against other uppity servants. I am Spartacus. Yes, that's (laughs) right. (laughs) And then Pompey, who is another great figure from Roman history, mopped up the survivors after that and then took credit for beating them. What I find so interesting about these gladiators is the myths that have grown up around them. I think actually, this is my favourite fact, but it's rather a long one, so if I go into it now, is the whole question of female gladiators. In 2000, in the area just outside main central London, there was a grave found of somebody very important, but they were social outcasts, so they had to be infamia or infamia. And they were buried with great richness of pottery and lamps, oil lamps. And the main oil lamp in the grave had depictions of gladiatorial contests and famous gladiators. And you end up finding out that the bones in this grave are a woman's. And we do know that there were female gladiators. It was a great rarity. It was, if you were putting on a female gladiatorial contest in your festival an unbelievable high point of the proceedings, always be female against female. I looked into this and essentially the Roman concept of women was, and I'm sorry, this is so misogynistic, they weren't expected to show bravery. So to see women, and I'm sure the slight lack of clothes, they had the same equipment as the men, the same armour, etc. It would have been titillating, I'm afraid to say, but it was the objective view of uh, society that they weren't capable of bravery. So any evidence of rudimentary Roller skate at all <laughs> yes. in the equipage. Gladiatorial fights on roller skates, that sounds... Catus harius. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it seems, I suppose if you were, you know, an impresario of gladiators and you had a client like Crassus or something like that, yeah. you know, rich and powerful, yeah. you probably would have to... What kept the crowd coming? Perhaps it was the prospect of actually seeing a death. In the mm. way of crowds in the They wanted world. to see a death. Yeah. It's whether the, you're absolutely right, Richard. I mean, if somebody laid on the desk, they would be extremely popular. It but was, would that be pre... So, hello, Caecilius. Yeah, you got a gig on Friday. Uh, the outcome for you is death. Uh, yes. Thanks a lot. Uh, do sharpen your sword. See you at 12. Well, they wouldn't be told to die. Would they know that they were... So this could be their last engagement? Yes. You would definitely go on until one had been wounded. And the three points that the gladiator was aiming for was under the arm, behind the knees, and the head. Those were the the weaker points, because they did have shields and armor at at different types. But there was was a pair of gladiators who were called Priscus and Verus, 
who were in the Flavian Amphitheatre, they gave a battle that went on for so many hours that in the end, they decided between the two of them that it was a draw. And it was such a profoundly moving experience, the whole thing, that both of them were given their freedom that day. That was it, because they'd given such entertainment. No one died, but that was the ultimate contest that anyone had ever seen. Wow. I've touched on the female gladiators, but I must touch on the movie Gladiator to mention the Emperor Commodus. He's the one played by Joachim Phoenix, very cruel and unpleasant man, a son of Marcus Aurelius, a much finer emperor. And he used to enjoy going in to do battle himself as a gladiator, but he always made sure that the other person had been disabled. So he was just dispatching them, really. Mm-hmm. But he, he liked to posture as a brave man. And gladiators did, as I think every one of our listeners will know, did have a sort of celebrity following. They were lusted after by women. They were seen as the ultimate of manhood and bravery and strength. But it's so interesting that they are, I suppose, in a way, like premiership footballer, but also beyond the pale socially. Yes, the low status. Yes, it's extraordinary, really, because essentially they're entertainers. Come and dance for me. Prance for me. Can I just say about Emperor Commodus, he was not a nice man. Mm. Apart from his posturing in the amphitheatres, he once had an argument. One of his servants had drawn a bath for him that was lukewarm, so he had him thrown into an oven. So you're talking about a psychopath, really, who um, had the power of life and death, not just in the gladiatorial ring, but uh, in life. He's considered the beginning of the end for Rome, actually, because he was unbalanced. Yeah. Anyway, I wanted to touch on the movie, but I think the female gladiators are really interesting. We do have a statue in Hamburg in the museum there of a beautiful woman holding a sword in triumph, looking down at sadly no longer there because the statue was broken, somebody they've just vanquished. So there was a celebration of it, but that was for high days and holidays. Could you retire? Well, you did retire, but you couldn't retire. You could be retired. I'd be retired. And then a good job for you, if you weren't freed, would be to be the head trainer in the School of Gladiators. Makes sense, doesn't it? Yes. As you would if you were a footballer or perhaps soldier. Exactly. It's like becoming a football manager. Yes, absolutely right. I don't think it would work for me. No, I'd rather be. I'd rather be, you know, selling popcorn on the side. No, no, no. no. I'd rather be the bloke who threw the party. Yes. Yeah, I was going to say he's going to be ordering the (laughs) (laughs) gladiators around. I think that's fine. I will do it. I'll do that. When was the last gladiatorial? Yes. The last one. Let's have one last go with the barbarian at the gate. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Thanks for that, Charles. That was excellent. And I think we're going to have to just ask our disembodied voice, who is this week's winner, please? Well, roll on through, Cat, and collect your prize because you are this week's winner. Oh, well done. Fantastic. Well done. Only was... took a broken leg. Well, yeah, it was worth it, wasn't it? <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> if you say break a leg. Yes. Your sacrifice has done you proud. Yes, yes. thank you. I, knew. I didn't we'll know that the time. name of the cheat. Yes. <laughs> Brilliant. So before we go, we'll have to tell our listeners our topics for next week. Richard, very specific this one, 1893 Hawaiian monarchy, please. Yes, fascinating time. I'm going to be looking at my current sport, which is a little bit more peaceful, and that's yoga. And then, Charles, please, debutants in the UK and US. Well, of course, natural. Yes, it's yeah. so, a good combination, <laughs> that. So that's bringing us to the end of this week's episode. Thank you, everyone out there, for listening. 
please do subscribe and leave us a review because it helps people find us when they're searching for a new podcast to listen to. You can also send us an email if you'd like, especially if you'd like to suggest a topic. That's rabbitholedetectives at gmail.com. So, in the words from Lewis Carroll's Alice, I went to a hunting party once. I didn't like it. They all started hunting me. Um, <laughs> Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Who was it, Cat? Thank you.